0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Animal Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Callie Smith, a host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Amelia Quinn about her new book, Reading Veganism, The Monstrous Vegan 1818 to Present. In this text, Quinn traces the trope of the monstrous vegan across 200 years of Anglophone literature, beginning with the creature in Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Quinn identifies four qualities that monstrous vegans share. They do not eat animals. They are hybrid assemblages of human and non-human animal parts. Monstrous vegans are sired outside of heterosexual reproductions. And they are intimately connected to acts of writing and literary creation. Reading veganism is a groundbreaking and crucial addition, not only to English literary studies, but to animal studies, environmental studies, gender studies, queer studies, food studies, among others. So with that, Amelia Quinn, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you, Callie. So I heard an interview that said this... um, this is born out of your dissertation, but that originally you were going to look at dairy and cheese. And what i share. so I'm really curious, how do we get from cheese to the monsters vegan?
1: Yeah, so when I started the PhD, the original proposal had been to do a literary history of cheese um, from a vegan perspective, right, that I was still very much interested in thinking about what it means to be a vegan reader, what it might mean to theorize in a vegan way. Um, but I was particularly interested, I guess, in a longer history of kind of representations of nut-based cheeses that actually go much further back than we would think so there's a lot of medieval cookbooks featuring nut-based cheeses there's a a really intriguing reference in Paradise Lost to this idea of churning up nut cheeses um, and so I guess I was interested in charting a history of of these alternatives, but also the way in which dairy, particularly these days, has become such a locus point of anxieties around nation, um, you know, like with the EU debates about what can be called cheese, um, that it seemed to be a really interesting site for exploring the ways in which animal products seem to invite uh, intersections of, of questions of gender and nation uh, race. Um, and it was only really when I was doing my cheese-based reading and kind of highlighting every reference to cheese in Frankenstein um, that I realized actually all the books I was looking at had this monster that that shared these traits and they were all referring back to each other. And so it, it was a kind of natural progression of like, a, an, I guess, an aha moment of like, oh, okay, so I'm actually looking at all these different monsters and why? What the more interesting question at that point seemed to be why is it that these monsters reappear at these different periods why do they reappear reappear in in these distinct ways and what does it tell us about being a vegan um, the cheese project is still in the works so i've just <laughs> i've just written up a paper for um and it's a collection that's on Margaret Atwood's use of cheese, which I think is a particularly interesting one. Uh, but yeah, that's the the origin story. I guess.
0: That's wonderful. It seems like you had to zoom back and create this broader framework of the vegan. And then now you get to zoom back in to <laughs> the, the dairy more specifically. Um since vegan theory is i would say relatively new and emerging uh i and i know that you co-edited an anthology about vegan theory as well so i thought it might be useful to just help our listeners um with providing a definition of vegan theory or maybe just describe briefly of how you conceptualize it
1: yeah that's it's okay i guess a tricky question because as you say it's in development and so i think for me it's uh, whatever you want it to be at this stage um but the idea behind a kind of theory of veganism is that it's not a question of finding texts that are about veganism per se or explicitly, that it's not about reading kind of polemical texts that are promoting veganism, though that can be one part of it, but there is something very distinct about uh, a vegan sensibility that is worth, that can be used as a kind of framework for reading. So in my specific sense, kind of how I conceptualize veganism is as a kind of interplay between a utopian striving, but also as a state that is always grounded in failure and insufficiency. And for me, that's the most important thing about veganism, that it's not this state of purity or, or kind of uh, self-righteousness, but that it is a grappling, with failure and with utopianism, and so that in is kind of what I use as this kind of theoretical framework of what it means to be in this situation of, of between these kind of two dual poles of, of failure, insufficiency, and utopianism.
0: I have to say uh, two things that I thank you so much for, for, for providing that definition, and two things that I really found helpful while reading this book is that idea of failure, and um because there's a sense sometimes as a researcher when you're trying to gather these things, it's like am I a bad, you know, vegan on a personal level, but also, am I, am I doing this, you know, wrong? You know, is there a correct way to be thinking along these lines? Um, And I also like that you highlighted, it doesn't have to be a text directly about ways of eating or about veganism to be thinking about this, um, to apply a vegan theoretical framework. So uh, that's really, really helpful. Um, Going back to failure, I think there was this quote that you that you pull out and cite in the book by I think Joshua Schuster that is um, it's almost like you're living in a science fiction to be a vegan. And so I'm going to read that quote that you have. Being a vegan means living in a partially alternate world that has a science fiction feel because it involves continual cognitive estrangement from social norms. So I'd really, I don't know, I this the first three books that you address are in the science fiction genre. So I wonder if you might say more about how science fiction um, allows space for this idea of failure and striving and utopianism.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think there's been so much written on the power of science fiction for thinking about animals, because as Schuster says, it, it it's this kind of estrangement from norms, and people like Cheryl Bint- uh, put a lot of um, emphasis on science fiction as one way in which we can think about otherness, right? That, that actually looking at aliens and alternate life forms is a, almost a kind of metaphor for how we might approach animals. Um, and I, I mean, I wouldn't say that science fiction necessarily is kind of built into this question of failure per se, but certainly in the texts I explore, it's a kind of question of why these figures, these monsters, are insufficient in some way. And certainly the texts I look at are uh, in many ways kind of very anti-vegan, right? Like H. G. Wells is very much dismissive of, of veganism or vegetarianism as this um this kind of pretense, right? That this kind of utopian striving that doesn't match with the body and, and Atwood really ridicules it as a as an uh, an unrealistic mode of of thinking about the future. And what's interesting about science fiction is it has been historically the place where vegetarianism and veganism is explored as these utopian futures or or John Miller's just written a great chapter on on, um, fake artificial meats that can be found way back in the 19th century. So way before we think about seeing them. Uh, and the texts I choose, I think, are almost satirizing that, that vision, this idea that, that veganism just fixes everything. And so for me, that's what's interesting about these texts in that they are directly referring to this history of science fiction thinking, which seeks to problematize meat-eating, um, often in dismissive ways, right? These authors are, are, are not convinced by that argument, but it's it's that moment of, of challenging it that I think is most interesting if that makes any sense. No,
0: no, that's that's wonderful. And you provided a good kind of glimpse into the different cultural moments that especially Wells and Atwood are responding to in that. And I think um, backing up to thinking about um, the, the idea of eating animals and that kind of thing uh, surrounding Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. And um, of course, her husband, Percy Shelley, as you sort of write, um, he really thought that kind of like uh, you know, Prometheus bringing the fire was kind of the fall of man because it allowed us to cook meat and eat meat, which led to like probably greater human brutalities. Um, so the idea was that um, if we stop eating meat, we could return to this kind of Edenic beginning in a way. And so we see, as you're kind of saying, that failure where Frankenstein never gets his female companion and can never return to that ideal um, is there anything else about kind of uh, vegetarianism in the in the late eighteenth or in throughout the nineteenth century that you'd like to highlight?
1: Well, I think I, I recently did a, a sh- interview with Alex Lockwood about the Shelleys, and it was interesting speaking to him there about you know Percy Shelley does have these very polemical ideas about the idea that meat eating has caused all evil in the world that all crime or bloodshed is caused by eating meat and he, he kind of envisages that, the, that society will eventually kind of move back to this kind of vegetarian origin and that everyone will become herbivorous including kind of carnivorous animals so it is this kind of completely absurdist vision in some ways and it's very much aligned with I think a discourse that we're trying to get away from in the present that veganism is this kind of bodily disposition that is, um, that can be validated through um, an idea of kind of an inherent, uh, an inherent biology. Uh, And he doesn't really talk about animals at all. Uh, And for some people that was just a kind of product of circumstances that it was easier to appeal to the public uh, if he focused on how meat-eating could improve social life, that it could produce crime, uh, rather than focus on more sentimental ideas. But I think it's interesting that Percy Shelley has become this this figure we refer to, and actually his ideas don't necessarily align so neatly with what we might want to say today. And partly what I'm doing in the book is saying that that doesn't really matter, right? We're not trying to rehabilitate some sort of straightforward narrative where all the ideas kind of line up, but that it's okay to... To reclaim ideas that that don't that you know are necessarily still useful because it, it, it demonstrates a, a particular mode of striving in in that moment.
0: And I one thing that you use throughout is the idea of a beautiful soul or as kind of this you know moral righteousness. Um, and and in a way, I think your use of the monstrous is really clever because, as you say, it really troubles that idea and says it's not like this fixed end or even a fixed state, um, it is, as you say, the striving. Um, so yeah, and I, I have to say just on a personal level, this emphasis on failure and striving has been, uh, it's been a really hopeful book. And when I came across the title, I was instantly even though I didn't know what it was, it just sparked so many questions and so much curiosity, like who's the monster? Why Why monstrous? Why monstrous and vegan together? So I have to wonder, were there any other options of descriptors instead of the monstrous for vegan? Or was it always the monstrous vegan? <laughs>
1: I think it was always The Monstrous Vegan. Um, I mean, I really wish that had been the kind of head title, but the publishers had other ideas. Um, I think the, the thing with The Monstrous, I mean, it started, right, the book is divided into two parts, and in part one, I'm just tracing this literary trajectory, which can, I guess, just be defined as a sense of like, okay, well, here are the monsters, and here is why they're interesting in these different contexts. But then the book really took a turn when I was writing a different article for, for something entirely different about 19th century whaling art, um, and that's when I started thinking about this concept of vegan camp of actually what it means to be constantly confronting trauma, right? That if you are living as a vegan, it's like, oh, it's, you know, it's very distressing to be to be thinking about how insufficient our individual actions are. And so vegan camp was one way of kind of rehabilitating vegan pleasure. And then that made its way into part two of the book where I started to think about actually how might we use that vegan monstrosity, right, rather than... You know, try and negate it and say, well, we're not monsters, we're this or this or this. But actually, perhaps there's something productive and reparative about claiming monstrosity for ourselves and embracing that as a part of what veganism is. And so that is why I think for me the monstrous is so important because it is a way of of redefining veganism away from mainstream stereotypes, that it is just this sense of purity or it's this inability to truly respond to others. But that actually uh, the monstrous allows us to kind of grapple with all the, the complications and complexities that it does entail. And I
0: really appreciate that you mentioned the two sections because the first section is of course, very, um, very useful. Um, a very great model of how to read veganism in these texts and chart that history. Um, but then you give us somewhere to go for the present moment, not only as vegans or just anyone who's interested in applying this, um, this lens. And I, uh, yeah, going back to what you said about the the whaling conference, um, I actually did get to see a photo of the sperm whale tooth, with the it's, is it called the jolly sailor?
1: Well, that's what the catalog calls it. I mean, this is a kind of completely un uh, un uh, cataloged really thing. So it's uh, there's no there's no artist, there's no real sense of kind of what it is. But yeah, it's called the, the jolly sailor.
0: And I loved how um, I think it was an interview with knowing animals. Um, you were talking about how e- preparing for that conference was a little difficult because you're like, what are you going to say? Like whaling is kind of horrific. Or, <laughs> and you didn't want to be, and I think you cite someone else, a, a vegan killjoy, which I love that, I love that phrase. So um, can you walk through how you came to develop the vegan camp uh, through that experience?
1: Yeah, so the vegan killjoy is, is kind of Richard Twine's idea, which I think is is something we can all relate to, of this sense of just being the disruptive dinner guest who who kind of makes everyone else feel bad. And he invests in that as a as a kind of productive experience to challenge ideas of, of uh, normative pleasure and joy. Um, so yeah, the whaling conference uh, I was invited to to offer a vegan perspective, and as you say, it was this sense of well. You know, my fear, I guess, is, is with vegan scholarship that you fulfill all the stereotypes people think it's going to be, which is that it's going to be not rigorous. It's just asserting your moral viewpoint onto a text and not allowing the text to speak that in some ways it's the opposite of good literary criticism, which is about complexity and finding nuance. And it's just applying a strict moral code. Uh, which is you know again the monstrosity aspect is that 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 really isn't what vegan reading is Um, so yeah I didn't want to give a really uh, expected presentation of okay well yeah this is this is horrible we should just burn it Um, in the vegan camp article that came out of that conference I I spoke about the various debates that have been going on in the British media about what to do with historic ivory um, and whether to just put it out of the royal collection or to or to destroy it altogether and uh, this idea of just destroying it doesn't seem to speak to the ways in which it has generated pleasure, the, the ways in which it has generated meaning. And so if we're not going to destroy it, if we're not just going to condemn it, then what do we do with it? How do we take account for our pleasures in a way that is um, that is in, a, is, is in some alignment with our veganism? Uh, and so, yeah, this this particular tooth uh, has this extremely gaudy image of this juvenile sailor with a big cannon between his legs. Uh, and I just found it so undeniably pleasurable, right? That I couldn't say, "Oh, this is horrible." You know, some of the paintings in the collection—it's it's whales with big harpoons in them, bleeding—and and it and it is it is hard to look at. Whereas this was just funny, right? And I kind of loved it, and I thought it was the kind of kitschiest uh, thing I'd seen. And so I was then trying to do something with, okay, well, how do I recognize that this is a kind of kitschy funny object, um, with, without? Kind of ignoring the exploitation, and so vegan camp emerged from that as one way of thinking about the ways in which we do laugh at and revel in um, a kind of carnivorous culture. So mock meats, I think, become a really important example of that. That people have these, you know, fake uh, tofurkeys that look like turkeys, right? Some of them even have real legs. Or so again, in the article, I talk about mock duck, which is you get it in a tin and it's like mock plucked. It's kind of disgusting, but it's kind of amazing. Uh, and it's like, what are we doing here? Like, what are, we, you know, is it really that we're just trying to recreate or is there something particularly kind of carnivalesque kind of in this in this embrace of these things that that are disgusting? Uh, and so, yeah, being camp is, is kind of the reconciliation of kind of pleasure and disgust um, in a way that, that gives some agency because it is a kind of laughing and mocking at the, the desperation, uh, that we show in trying to assert our superiority over animals. And I was wondering, so that's kind of the,
0: so in a sense that by writing that paper, um, how do you perform camp? Can you sort of walk through like camp as a performance? Cause it seems like the part, part two is really about performing two different ways of the monstrous vegan. We have Elizabeth Costello, um, and then we have, uh, this idea of vegan camp so can you maybe speak about those two types of performance and how they are similar or different
1: in in relation to Costello and and Hollinghurst yes please Yes, yeah, so I mean Hollinghurst I guess is the most overt example of kind of camp from a literary perspective so I trace the ways in which he has this kind of very sad vegetarian character at the heart of of the swimming pool library who kind of sits at home all day eating what he refers to as old tofu burgers and desperately <laughs> longs to have sex with, with men with big cocks and, and he can't, right? And so then you have the protagonist of the novel who's constantly referring to his sex life in terms of kind of blood and guts and gore. Uh, and so Hollinghurst seems to be investing in, uh, in what Carol Adams has overtly uh, commented on as the sexual politics of meat, that, that kind of male sexual um, victory is, is embedded in these, in these logics of hunting. Um, but he 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 does that through kind of queer desire so in that way he's kind of rewriting the script Um, so what i found interesting was this vegetarian character who is really sympathetic um, and offers these kind of very small points in the narrative where there does seem to be something really pleasurable about making a salad um, and that it distracts from these kind of logics of domination that seem to that seem to structure the the sex life of the protagonist and so the point here is that not that Hollinghurst is overtly writing a vegan novel, but that there's something in the kind of absurdity of these references. And it really is kind of overblown, right? That the, the men in the porn film have been um, conscripted from Smithfield Market, right? The famous site in London of kind of meat debates and animal rights law. Um, so I think that there's a kind of humor to be gained from this, that we can embrace the, the, the figure James, the kind of sexless vegan, um, as, as someone who. Uh, is a is a monstrous vegan figure that isn't to be negated or we're not sexist, but that, that, that we can perform it as a kind of like, well, of course, we secretly desire meat and, and we're just kind of waiting because that is a kind of parody of the culture itself. So I'm kind of still waiting for the day where we get the kind of vegan drag act. I think there's so much potential in it. Like I've seen so much drag that I think could be already considered vegan camp, even if not consciously doing so. so there was one example from... I believe it was in Atlanta, Georgia, many decades ago, um, a drag act who kind of, her acts focused on these Vienna sausages that are made (laughs) from like three different types of meat. Um, So, I mean, there was even, I've recently started very late, relatedly watching RuPaul, but there was one recently I was watching where the the play they're kind of doing celebrity impersonations and one of them is impersonating a vegan chef uh, and RuPaul says well if it needs to be if it's going to be funny you need to say that you know she's secretly eating meat on the side Um, (laughs) and so there's something there too about this this desire to see vegans as slipping up all the time that I think is really interesting
0: I haven't fully finished it but the Netflix documentary series Bad Vegan." Mm-hmm.
1: The, I watched just, about half of it because I thought it had potential but I couldn't finish it <laughs> that's exactly it right there's this 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 media fascination with vegans who are bad We, caught who are, you, we caught yeah. you.
0: Like, remember the pizza at the beginning it's almost like a crime scene photo
1: of like we mm. saw the pizza box in Costa Rica or everything exactly like the, the absolute horror that she was eating dominoes I think it was right so yeah I think that you know that is campy right the media is campy that it's, it's this spectacle and and kind of by looking at it from a vegan lens of kind of what does it mean that we're we kind of constantly trying to catch out these vegans as as secretly eating cheese or, or not being good
0: and um in the case of elizabeth costello i i imagine that when you were preparing for the the whaling conference and maybe before you had the camp idea did you have a concern about maybe being uh that type of character standing before people and just like talking you know about the brutality of animals because it seems like if i understand the way that she's Uh, performing in that sense she is performing a very fixed identity she is saying okay yes you see me as alien so therefore I will perform this alienated radical uh, vegetarian am I understanding that correctly
1: yeah well I think it's more that she kind of embodies some dominant kind of cultural stereotypes of like the little old lady who sits at home talking to her cats that uh, is overly sentimental um that is inconsistent, right? She notes her own inconsistencies. That she has a leather handbag, so she's not all that good. Uh, she, in various other iterations across Katsia's work, she doesn't eat. So there's a big trope of the disappearing vegan who kind of slowly has to give up everything until they just fade away. Um, I mean, what's interesting is that you know she is so overtly a performance of Kutsias, right? He reads the the ten lectures, um, a, a, and she therefore becomes this mirror of him delivering the lectures as she delivers her lectures. And so there's this kind of distance between his own vegetarian views, which he's spoken about in various other platforms uh, and his performance of them through her. So using this figure to kind of express um, his, his own kind of animal rights sentiments. Uh, and the point in the book I make is that some have criticized him for for using her so as not to so as not to be that figure, right? That you say you're afraid of being that figure. So someone would say, well, he's afraid of being seen as the militant vegetarian, so that's why he distances himself through Costello. Um, and my point in the book is, well, that's not that's I think it's a bit smarter than that, right? That, that veganism is always this kind of distance. It is this discursive label that we apply to ourselves, that we write through language, um, that our access to animals is always mediated by a discursive context, and that this performance of veganism that that it does allows us to to kind of view that um so it became, <laughs> it's a little kind of convoluted as a kind of theoretical point but the idea that it tells us something about our distance um from both animals and from our kind of moral and ethical decisions
0: and I think you know in that vein of thought these are um kind of survival strategies you present these both the chapter on um Quitsy's work and then Hollinghurst's work. Like these, the camp and um, this distancing are two ways that we can we can face the horrors of the millions of animals that you dedicate the book to in the introduction.
1: Exactly, because I, you know, again, in the book, I talk about the fact that the, the dominant narrative in animal studies has always been that we need to get closer, that we need to recover the violence, that we live in a society where that violence is constantly hidden away. And that's true. And I think obviously there's a real... Value to uncovering that violence, to witnessing that violence, but it can also be paralyzing. There, and you know, using the work of Cedric, who who suggests that you know paranoid reading, this idea of constantly exposing violence, isn't the only way of reading. And so the book is not saying that we need to not uncover violence or that that's not a valuable project, but that there are other ways of of thinking about this, and that distance doesn't need to be something we completely reject. But the irony, humor playfulness can be ways of of grappling with with these ideas too
0: and i think um you know in terms of just like vegan and veganism's image you know and kind of the wider mainstream uh, it could be a little helpful to have some campy humorous uh marketing or profiles because oftentimes you know and i follow many of these accounts as well it's just like you know footage of slaughterhouse after slaughterhouse after slaughterhouse and that is very important but at the same time it's also very discouraging, very heavy, and can kind of be a dead end uh, for finding motivation to think further about how to um, to contribute to the wider to the wider cause. Uh, okay. Speaking of advertising, I love that you begin the book by talking about a McDonald's commercial, and um, there's so much at play that you highlight with gender here. And it's this young boy wants to order um, chicken nuggets, and the mother is like. Ah! you know hit the brakes wait a minute this is this is very dangerous i don't know about this and of course this is all male narrated except for this other uh woman comes on screen Is like no it's actually really okay so this one woman comforts the other woman in order to protect i think it's really interesting a young boy you know like the progeny (laughs) of the future so i wonder if we could use that maybe as an entry point um not only into you know, the mainstream use of Frankenstein or Franken, anything, um, but also maybe
1: gender as well. Yes. Okay. So like, it. so to talk about the kind of the, the way in which Frankenstein infuses kind of contemporary culture, or just to think about gender more? Let, I guess like, let's do
0: both of them. So I know that you say Franken as a prefix was entered into the OED, Oxford English Dictionary, in 1992. Um, and it's primarily used for like genetically modified foods. So definitely in alignment with like, is there something genetically weird or scientifically mutilating about the, the, um, the chicken nugget? So I guess we can start there and then we can move to gender.
1: Yeah, I mean, so because I think I, what I know in that introduction is the kind of irony, right, that Frankenstein, are, so McDonald's are positioning themselves as not Frankenstein, right, that they've been attacked over many years as producing, as you say, these Franken foods that are the hybrids that we don't know where they've come from that are ultimately going to kill us, right? It comes back to attack its maker. Um, and therefore they're saying, well, we're not Frankensteinian. We're kind of part of these kind of very pure return to, to ideal kind of farming agricultural values. Uh, and there's an irony there in that, because as Carol Adams has shown us that Frankenstein is actually this kind of urtext of vegetarianism that is about uh, the desire to live meat-free at at its heart, Um, that there's a kind of irony that of course, McDonald's would want to distance itself from from that text altogether. As to the kind of proliferation of of Frankenstein and and food, it certainly obviously is coming to the fore more and more in, in vegan circles um, because of the way in which fake meats, genetically modified meats, are seen to be this kind of future promise that that we can, you know, a kind of a more realistic way of thinking how we live meat free, right? That we just we use lab meats, um, and it's something. I mean, it's something I'm still thinking a lot about. Um, I know Josh Milburn writes a lot about this in a kind of way that I find very reasoned in that he's like well you know we can't just dismiss that these things that you know they really do hold out potential Uh, so i think this kind of narrative of frankenstein and veganism is going to become more and more kind of complex and different as as those technologies evolve
0: yeah um and then i think as well when you're talking about quitsy and then we have mary shelley so we have shelley who creates a male um, male monster and has the male scientist and then we have Koetse who has a female protagonist and I wonder um, and maybe among some of the other texts you have as well about this whole idea of creating an, um a differently gendered character is there anything there um, potentially <laughs>
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that so. certainly in Kutsia, there's a kind of conscious interplay with this idea of a male author speaking and narrating a female character. And he uses that to reflect more broadly on the, the limits of the sympathetic imagination and how we think ourselves into the experience of others without simply overwriting their experiences. I mean, what's interesting about The Monstrous Vegan is that in, in contemporary culture, the vegan is always female, uh, and and she's a kind of monstrous mother who's killing her children with their vegan diet, or she's uh, kind of anorexic who, who's using veganism as a cover. Uh, whereas in most of the books, it is a, is it is a male figure um, that embodies a, a kind of anxieties about the future, and so yeah, one of the defining traits of the monstrous vegan is that it's a product of male. Uh, reproduction, that it doesn't come from kind of the classical reproductive pairing. Uh, and that's part of its kind of queer queerness, that it is seen as one of the anxieties it generates is that it's disrupting our idea of a reproductive futurism in which the the social fabric will just continue and, and reproduce itself as, as before. And so in that sense, this is why I guess queer theory becomes so central to the project that there, there's something about the monstrous vegan that that doesn't fit with our ideas of kind of gendered and sexual norms.
0: This might be a good time to just kind of go through the four traits that you identify and then maybe show like what is so troubling or disruptive about that particular trait. Does that seem useful? Yeah. Okay. So the first one is that monstrous vegans do not eat animals. So thinking about this wider history of vegetarianism and then veganism, what is so anxiety inducing about that for maybe within the context of the narratives, but maybe broadly at, the, at different social moments.
1: Yeah, I mean, so I think what's interesting in the narratives is that it, it, it's seemingly inexplicable, right? That, that the you know Frankenstein is famous for the fact that you know he's actually described as extremely beautiful, right? Frankenstein's done a really good job of making his monster; he's the most beautiful man to ever exist, luscious hair, and it's only when he life is sparked that he suddenly becomes horrific, uh, and so there's seemingly no way of of determining in kind of logical terms why this figure is so monstrous or anxiety inducing other than that it says something about humanity about about futurism that he's a a creature created outside of these elements Uh, and similarly i mean in hg wells the the refusal of meat is a cause of anxiety because it projects back on on prendrick right The, the narrator there of making or forcing him to recognize his own animality, that that his own inability to control desires, that it takes us back to the beginning of the novel where he contemplates cannibalism and suggests that actually our ideas of ourselves as very human, as very civilized, that, you know, just underneath the surface we are kind of beastly. Um, and so veganism seems to create anxiety because of what it says about carnivorous appetite because of what it tells us about our relationship to our desires that this this act of kind of resistance or abstinence seems to tell you know seems to reflect back on meat eaters uh, mm-hmm. and so that's why I argue about Hollinghurst's novel this idea that that rejection of these kind of normative structures of desire forces the recognition of our own often uncomfortable relationships to desire that often act inconsistent relationships to morality and desire that, that the kind of embrace of that in veganism forces a reflection back um, on, on the kind of non-vegan aspects of society
0: and I guess there might be some defensiveness built in there because it's like the, the meat eaters feel maybe judged or some maybe potentially from the non non-meat eaters
1: well, yeah, certainly it's like no one wants to have a vegan guest, right? <laughs> you Forcing you to confront what's on your on your plate or, or, you know, making you have to justify those choices, that there is this kind of anxiety at the scene of the, of the dinner table specifically that people bring up, that what is it about, About I mean, Rob, Rob, Robert Mackay has an excellent article that he starts talking about when his brother-in-law serves him a meal, he says, oh, here's your lesbian food. Uh <laughs> And, and the kind of what kind of anxiety is his brother in law expressing then that he has to kind of make this food queer in order to, to serve it, to, to kind of distance himself from it in some way and reinforce such norms. And that that is this kind of really potent site of the, in which we're kind of forced to recognize oh, okay, your relationship to your meat eating is perhaps not so secure and fixed as you'd like it to be because otherwise, why this kind of level of anxiety that's emerging at these sites?
0: And then the second one is that monstrous vegans are hybrid assemblages of humans and animals. Um, And of course, like in the case of Frankenstein and in the Beast People and Wells, it really is like human-animal assemblages. Um, But I wonder, you know, too, by the practice of like ingesting meat, does that also account as as an assemblage potentially? Like you... um by eating it it becomes part of you you're part animal somehow
1: yeah i mean it's a super interesting point and it's certainly yeah something that i think a lot has been written on in more kind of post-humanist scholarship of this process of kind of mutual becoming that we're sharing these kind of microbes through ingestion yeah certainly as you say frankenstein and hg wells is very literal right it's the kind of sewing together almost of, of these aspects um i mean in the context of the book i guess i'm interested in the ways in which there's this seeming destabilization of the human and the boundaries of the human uh, and how veganism comes to be associated with this troubling of what we understand the human to be, that, that the boundary lines between species start to start to crumble.
0: I love that. And there's all kinds of talk about, I mean, a lot of theory about entanglement and kind of this shared, you know, mesh between the human and the non-human. Um, but I really like this, this kind of thinking of the boundaries and this destabilization. Through this idea of the monstrous i think that offers something really unique and exciting um to add to that conversation
1: well particularly because i think entanglement theories like particularly people like donna Haraway, have automatic or seem to be kind of by default anti-vegan there's this assumption that veganism cannot be engaged in in the levels of complexity that are are necessary for this mesh that it's because it's asserting or the assumption that it's asserting just this pure moral code that's decided in advance, that that is not recognising the level of our entanglement or not recognising the ways in which we must inevitably kill or be killed. Uh, And and the monstrous, I I hope, offers a kind of rebuttal to that, that actually veganism is an openness to, to that difficulty as opposed to a shutting down from that difficulty.
0: I appreciate that you uh, stopped to add more to that. I think that's, yeah, it's like, oh, you're not, ex- you know, because like, oh, vegans have just exempt themselves and they're over in this side world where they just hope for a better life. That's never going to happen in their lifetime, but it's like, no, we can actually be, we are a part of this conversation as well. Um, and then the third one is that monstrous vegans are sired outside of sexual reproductions and are products of male creation. So again, how does this, you know, trouble the normative normative ideas related to gender and sexuality. Like, what's sort of the built-in anxiety with that trait?
1: So, I think this goes back to what I was talking about before. It kind of builds on Lee Edelman's work in No Future, where he talks about the the kind of the queer as this figure of of anti-futurism that is associated with the the kind of um, the failure to reproduce the social order as it as it has been. Um, and so the monstrous vegan, I think, plays into this, this discourse that it offers these kind of children who are grown, fully grown, who refuse to, to perpetuate the kind of normative structures. Um, I mean, and then it also ties in, I think, importantly, into the, into the fourth trait in which veganism is this kind of discursive creation uh, and not something that is kind of organic in any way. Uh, and that that's also important to to recognize in the kind of the distancing of of, of our ethical identities from from our bodies in some way.
0: And I guess we can use the fourth point to kind of transition um, to this idea that you write about writing as monster making, um, because the fourth quality is that monstrous vegans are intimately connected to acts of writing and literary creation. Uh, So I wonder if we could use this moment to talk about maybe... What monster making through writing looks like for you as a scholar. Uh, maybe what you hope to impart to your students about how they might participate in this monster making. Um, and then maybe even creative writers, if you want to extend that broadly to the people who are creating um, different characters and, and works.
1: Yeah, I mean, so the power of Frankenstein has always been that it invites, you can kind of read the monsters whatever you want, right? It's been it's been read as, as a kind of monster about sexual anxieties, gendered anxieties, racial anxieties, anti-Semitic anxieties, um, and the scholarship that's been produced on monstrosity um, over the past few decades emphasises that the monster is really, what makes it most monstrous is that it embodies endlessly monstrous traits. And so it, there's an anxiety for me as a scholar going into writing about Frankenstein, which is you know one of the texts that, that has been written the most about of like what more could you possibly have to say? Um, But I think the, the power of Frankenstein and the power of the monster is that it it is this kind of endless surface in which anxieties can be found. Um, So in that sense, you know, it's, it's open to kind of things far beyond um, veganism, but in relation to what I'd say to future creative writers for vegan monsters, who knows? I mean, I still, I find new ones every day and I'm excited by them. So I've been reading a lot of Octavia Butler recently um, and Jovian Parry has done some great work on, on the kind of monstrous vegans in her series. Um, and I think they open up whole new questions about um, questions of relation and uh, what's, cause they're, they're kind, of, kind of cannibalistic, they kind of consume the other, they want to, they want to merge. Um, so there's all sorts of I think new and interesting questions that can be raised by by this figure of vegan monsters. So I'd encourage people to continue it. Um, I'm not sure that I have any other <laughs> particularly insights. No, that's podcast. wonderful. It yeah, that was full of
0: insights. <laughs> um, so I guess in closing, I'd love to hear about what you're currently working on. Um, you mentioned this return to different cheeses, and is that uh, yeah? So feel free to share whatever you're currently curious about
1: yeah, I mean the cheese thing that's that's kind of done now. So I still think I'll return to cheese one day, but I wrote a little paper on uh, yeah Atwood's use of cheese because I'd noticed that you know across her kind of plus thirty novels, you know, there's hundreds of references to milk and cheese in every single one, and they seemingly have no uh, fixed referent, right that that they just refer to everything that cheese is a metaphor for literally anything. Uh, and so I was writing a piece trying to work out what we might do with that and and ultimately suggesting that it it may be another form of kind of vegan camp, this kind of inability for cheese actually to hold the mountain of references that we we try and apply to it. Um, But more broadly, I'm I'm thinking now about misanthropy uh, in the contemporary period. So it kind of flows quite nicely out of monsters, but thinking particularly in this age of climate crisis, racial injustice, violence against animals, this move towards kind of hating humans that you know can be a very damaging discourse that looks very eugenic in its desires to just get rid of whole populations. But I'm trying to think about whether anything productive can come out of that, that, whether there is a kind of critical misanthropy. So in January, we're having a conference in Amsterdam, trying to explore this through kind of academic papers, but also through performance and dance and thinking about what it means to hate the human in the present time.
0: I love that because, it, it, you know, like you're saying, if you take the monstrous too far, it's like, oh, humans just need to to get off this planet. So, but really this monstrosity is what's been so helpful for reading this. Is it's just a way to see and to think about um, how complicit we are in different in different structures and different layers of uh, society. So I'm excited about those works. I look forward to this, especially, well, all of them. They all sound really exciting. Thank you. Um, Well, we have taken up some of your time today, but I absolutely want to thank you so much for joining me um, and our new book's listeners. And uh, yeah, everyone go check out The Monstrous Vegan or Reading Veganism, The Monstrous Vegan from 1818 to present. Um, And it's with Oxford University Press from 2021. So thank you again. Great.
1: Thank you so much, Kelly.